Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome listeners to the first installment in our Taken movie review series. Today we are reviewing Taken. This is your co-host Corbin. And I'm Alan. Taken 2008. I was but a wee lad of 13. Right on the edge of, uh, well, that, that was the year that I turned 13. So what a glorious time to, you know, get into PG-13 movies. Yeah, I was, I think I was 12. Um, and I, at the time, was not really allowed to go see movies in the theater. Uh, <laughs> still, I don't know how many I watched, but I can tell you there weren't too many. Well, okay, I guess that, that tells us that you didn't get to see this one in theaters, but... No. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, <laughs> yeah, speaking of pg-13 movies we are taking a break just a heads up if you're wondering when we're going to be getting back to the godzilla films leading up to this month's godzilla versus kong well we are going to be reviewing the taken trilogy first and then we, we had a little bit of time in between starting the um kong and godzilla movies so there's actually this is a great time to catch up because there's three of those reviews out right now so you can listen to those and catch up just in time for our review of Godzilla King of the Monsters, and then Godzilla vs. Kong. Also, last week we finished our Tom and Jerry kind of mini movie review series with the brand new theatrical and HBO Max streaming mm -hmm. uh, 2021 Tom and Jerry movie, and we reviewed the 1992 theatrical Tom and Jerry the movie. We will link um, the Godzilla ones so you can catch up on those and the Kong ones and the Tom and Jerry ones in the description below so you can make sure to catch up on those if you missed those. Also, while you're in the description, make sure to go and follow us over on Letterboxd. That is where we log all the movies that we watch every week, not just these movies, but different movies, our star ratings, our thoughts. That's a great way if you ever want to know what we thought of a certain movie. Also, timestamps are down there as well, so if you're ready for us to just jump straight into the podcast, then you can jump around wherever you want as well. Also, our Patreon page gives you great bonus content. It's a great way to support this channel make it improved. It really does help us as well. And then of course, links, we're on all major podcast platforms. So there are links to all of those in our social media page and our official website where you can sign up with email if you want to be old school and go the email route that's down there as well. So there's a ton of stuff. And of course, if you're wondering what's coming up next, we always post the next four weeks of reviews. And then there's a link to the um, 2021 full schedule. So I just want to let you know, tons of stuff in the description below. You don't want to miss out. If you're not looking at that, you are really missing out and lessening the experience because there's just tons of stuff down there. So Taken, depending on where you lived, for us here in the United States, it came out Friday, January 30th, 2009. Now, if you lived in France, it came out February 27th, 2008. Hmm. And I did not know that. It was, I mean, it is based in France, and so, and I know, that, uh, I would assume that a good chunk of it was probably filmed in France, 
So I guess they're lucky that they get an American film first. <laughs> so that is interesting because I always, I mean, I really always thought of this as an American movie over here. It's distributed by 20th Century Fox. But when I did a deep dive into the bonus materials and the commentaries and whatnot, for all intents and purposes, this is actually a French film. Um, it's directed by Pierre Morel. Um, the screenplay writers are Luc Besson. Robert Mark Kamen is not French, but the cinematographer is Michael Abram Abramowitz. Um, the composer is Nathan McKayley, editor Friedrich Thorval. The production was done by Hughes Tissandier. So a lot of um, French people were involved in creating this. And for the um, scenes shot in Los Angeles, which were actually shot there in the beginning and end of the film, that had an American crew on it. But the premiere was in France. Pierre Morel only, I, I've never heard him speak English. He only speaks French. Mm -hmm. But they wanted to get... Um, known names for this film. That's why they got Liam Neeson. They got Famke Jensen, who was had been doing the X-Men films. And Maggie Grace would go on to do stuff as well. So they wanted to kind of get these big names for the draw. But nevertheless, um, yeah, I, I watched the kind of, they did a premiere on the bonus materials. And people that came out of the premiere said, I'm so excited that they're doing a French movie, but with American pacing. And right. I thought that was really interesting. I never thought of this as French, but for all intents and purposes, this really is actually a French film. Um, and I did actually get to hear some of it. And I did get to hear the French dub for for a bit of it. It was actually pretty good. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I think now that you're like bringing all this up, it, it is no surprise that it it's not just French, you know, in terms of where it's shot and where it takes this movie primarily takes place. It's French for the most part, also in who ended up uh, going being on the crew to make it. So that doesn't really surprise me. Um, and in fact, that's actually kind of cool to see, you know, uh, more or less a very a French movie that I would have thought, and it seems you and I were under the same assumption that it was primarily an American film, which I mean, in some in some ways, it is. Um, it is owned by two American companies, um, but either way, it is, as you said, for all intents and purposes, also very much a French film as well. Well, Alan, you already said that you did not see this film in theaters back in 2008. When did you first see this movie, if you, rem if you even remember? Yeah, I was definitely in college. Um, I, I bet you, no, actually, I do know. I was a freshman in college. Um, when I finally saw this, um, I can't remember if I bought the DVD first. I don't think I did. I think I watched it first and then later bought the DVD before I collected Blu-rays. Um, I remember really, really enjoying it. In fact, my original score for this on IMDb was an eight when I first watched it back when I was, um, a freshman in college. And I think I watched the entire trilogy not long after that. And my guy on my floor, he was like, oh, you should see the rest of them. So that was probably when I watched it was my freshman year. So about four or five years ago now, um, actually no closer to six than I think about it since I watched this movie. Um, I don't think I've seen it really since then, but yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've seen this movie. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, I don't know. Honestly, it's probably been 10 years would be my guess at mm -hmm. the earliest. 
because yeah, in 2008, I was 13. I don't think I saw this in theaters. I don't have any memory of that at least because I mean, if I wasn't allowed to go see Transformers in theaters, I probably wasn't seeing Taken, but I'm pretty sure I actually got it on Blu-ray for my birthday when I was like maybe like 14 or 15. Gotcha. I just remember that was one of those like PG-13 movies that I loved to watch. It had great action and that and X-Men Origins Wolverine I had on Blu-ray and I just ate those those movies up. But nevertheless, were you interested at all in seeing this movie when it came out? Do you remember the trailers at all? I I don't really remember the trailers. Um, I also wasn't really allowed to watch this movie. This was, for whatever reason, this was a movie that my mom like made sure that I just never watched. Um, which, as you right. can tell, as I said, <laughs> she was pretty. After I got to college, you know, I was. It was very much in the influence of I can do whatever I want, mom. Um, right. <laughs> so. Yeah, I I had heard about it, um, and I remember I always got this confused with, with another film called Takers that came out, uh, I think, a year or two after this one, which is a different movie, but yes. I don't remember seeing a, any trailers for it. Um, I, I clearly didn't watch it until much later after it came out, so I knew that it existed, probably from you and our other friend, um, but that mm-hmm. was probably as far as... Well, at least when it when it released or closer to when it released, that was about as much as my knowledge was of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're you're bringing up some memories of movies that came out back then. Takers. There's another one called Armored that I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. and it did seem like they kind of took plots from more so R-rated films, and then they kind of PG thirteenized them. So I, I really do kind of remember that. Yeah, the late two thousands was kind of the era of the edgy PG thirteen where there was just so many action movies like that with, you know, guns and violence and robbery, but it was all kind of tamped down. It was really trying to hit up a wide audience. Um, And then Zack Snyder ruined all of it with like 300 and Dawn of the Dead and Watchmen. And he's like, I'm not making no PG-13 movies. You're going to be hard R. Oh gosh, that was yep. uh, that's that's for another time. That's for another time. I've got stories with those. <laughs> but anyways, so now you can watch the trailer now. Would it pique your interest, you think, at that age? Or does it even pique your interest being an adult now? At that age, um, yeah, it would probably pique my interest. I'd be like, oh, I want to see that. Um, <laughs> if I could find a way to get to the theater to watch it. Um, seeing it now, maybe I would be more intrigued that Liam Neeson is taking on a, an action star role. That'd be what really would pique my interest. Um, everything else, mm, not, not necessarily looks more like a generic, like spy thriller kind of movie, um, that maybe looks to be taking a little bit off of Jason Bourne. Um, but I would be curious but I think I would wait to see like what it was like before I wouldn't watch in the theater. I wouldn't be there opening weekend. Yeah. You know, I do. Now that I see this trailer, I'm like, oh, yeah, it brings back memories of seeing that trailer on TV. And it still gives me chills. But as a 13 year old, heck, yeah, I would be at the theater. I, I absolutely couldn't wait to see it. But looking at it with more adult eyes, I, I really think the editing of the trailer is a mixed bag for me. 
because sometimes I think it's effective, but other times it kind of ruins what they're trying to do. They're really trying to do too much at once. Um, I mean, I love the instrumental, which plays over the credits. I even um, added that song to my Apple Music. But honestly, I think what would have been a great trailer. Now, this was like kind of coming off of the era. We've reviewed movies even earlier than this, where trailers were just, it's like, yep, that's a 2000s movie. Yep. And it really shows in the trailer. Um, but what I think would have been great is if the trailer was just that one take of Liam Neeson's monologue when his daughter is taken, because that's all one shot. And I think that's that's the trailer right there. Mm -hmm. um, no cutting, nothing that I think that would have been a far more effective trailer. It's not a bad trailer, oh, yeah. though, but absolutely. Interesting. So when it came out in 2009, um, what what exactly did it make back in the theater? Because, I mean, it spawned two sequels, so it must have done pretty well, I would think. So it did super well, actually. So with a budget of, of low budget of $25 million, it opens number one with a opening weekend gross of $24.7 So okay. almost making its budget back. It opened in 3,100 theaters. Domestically, it grossed $145 million. Um, foreign 81.8 million for a worldwide total of 226.8 million dollars dang yeah so that did do pretty well especially for the budget that it had that's really well yeah so it basically made like 10 times its budget yeah. back oh man i mean and originally make sure to listen to your guide to taken where i talk a lot more about what went into making this film and the thought but just real quick Nobody really expected much out of this movie. I mean, Liam Neeson himself thought this was going to be more so just kind of like a paycheck or a direct to DVD type thing. But what we know as like Liam Neeson, the action star now where this kind of became a thing where Liam Neeson just did like a bunch of action movies. This mm -hmm. is where it all started. Right. Right. Yeah. He did a, like a bunch of movies after this that were pretty much the same, a very similar premise. He was the action star for whatever reason and that was the case for almost i think it was close to a decade after after taken was first released if not longer yeah i think it's still going on i mean i think there was one more that just came out he did say something like he's going to be retiring from action movies but mm -hmm. people loved liam neeson as an action star so it's pretty cool yeah but first of all our, it should raise a red flag that they put this movie out in January. It should show that Fox didn't have a lot of hope in this movie. Little did they know that probably, I mean, if they, you know, I almost want to say if they put this movie out almost any other month, it wouldn't have done as well. And it's January. There's like nothing to see. So of course this movie caught on. And I think that also lends to its success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also see that, you know, since it came out at the tail end of January, maybe, they had maybe there's a little bit of hope there um right but releasing yeah. it in january that's usually not a good sign so what what taken was number one like i said paul blart mall cop was number two that was in its third week the uninvited was opening weekend and that was number three hotel for dogs was in number four that stayed the same and gran torino came in at number five that had actually already come out 
the year before. So because that had been in, in theaters for eight weeks. Hmm. Um, yeah. And then interestingly enough, Slumdog Millionaire was number six that had been in there for 12 weeks. So like three months. And that would, of course, go on to become Best Picture. I mean, yeah, there's really, really not a whole lot to choose from. It's either kind of family comedy with Mall Cop and Hotel for Dogs or everybody's kind of already seen Gran Torino at this point, probably that wants to see it. So in terms of scores, um, what exactly? So we, we've talked about, you know, it did really well in the box office. So I'm guessing that the scores are probably reflective of that as well. So what are the scores for Taken? I got to know, have you checked the IMDb score? Do you know what it is? Yeah, it's like a 7.9, I, I think last. I, that was like, that's the one I know, though. Or okay, I was, I was kind of, I was kind of hoping you hadn't checked because I wanted to surprise you. <laughs> but no, I knew it was high. I, that was the one that I know, though, is that the IMDb score is high. I was genuinely surprised that this movie is as high as it is. Yeah, it has a 7.8 on IMDb right mm-hmm. now. Which is crazy. Which is which is wildly impressive yeah for an action movie like this i think i mean we're we're talking about born territory you know we have reviewed all the born movies if you are curious on our thoughts we'll link that down below as well Mm -hmm. but on letterboxd it has a 3.4 which you know isn't too bad now here's where things get very mixed and it has a 59 percent critics rating on rotten tomatoes so technically, a majority of critics do approve of the film, even though that's pretty close to straight down the middle. Right. But a very high um, audience um, score of 85%. And then on cinema score, audiences straight out of the theater gave it an A-. minus. So audiences really liked this movie. Critics were split. Yeah. yeah and this We don't see this very often, at least not on what we review on the podcast, where it's a clear divide between uh, audience and critics. Uh, this is one of those moments where it is a clear divide that audiences love this movie and critics think it's eh or not very good, which is <laughs> kind of surprising. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It, it does seem to be one of those. It's not like it's not like crazy polarizing like we've talked about with some movies where it's like audiences give it like a 90 percent and critics give it like a 15 percent, something crazy like that. Right. But right. Nevertheless. Yeah. So I'm curious to see how our thoughts will play out all these years later. Mm-hmm. But listeners, if you haven't seen Taken, first of all, where have you been? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't maybe maybe you were too young at the time. But nevertheless, this movie was a really big deal when it came out. So it is kind of cool to revisit it here. But if you if you haven't seen it yet and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause. Go ahead and watch the film and then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about all the spoilers. All right, buckle up, Alan, for this plot. I'm I'm ready. Brian Mills, played by Liam Neeson, is a retired US ex preventer, an agent who stops bad things from happening. He's moved out to Los Angeles to be closer to his daughter, Kim, played by Maggie Grace, who is about to celebrate her 17th birthday. Despite being on the cusp of legal adulthood, Mills still thinks of his daughter as five years old, and he remembers how she wanted to be a singer. At her birthday party, he gives her a karaoke machine, which she is grateful for, but her stepfather, Stuart, played by Xander Berkeley, gives her a horse, which she seemingly loves more. 
Not quite sure what to do with his free time, Mills joins his friends on a security detail for pop star She-Ra, played by Holly Valance. At a concert, she is attacked by a knife-wielding maniac, but is saved by Mills. Now eternally grateful, she offers to give Mills' daughter lessons with her vocal coach and a chance at stardom, since earlier he asked her for advice to give to his daughter. Later, Kim and her frigid stepmom Lenore, played by Famica Jensen, spring that Kim wishes to go to Paris with her friend Amanda, played by Katie Cassidy, in order to visit art museums while immersing herself in French culture. He reluctantly agrees, after his first I'll think about it ends in a tearful meltdown. <laughs> because Kim runs off, he doesn't get the chance to tell her about singing lessons with Shira. At the airport, he spies in Kim's back a map of her plans to traverse Europe to follow the U2 concert, which Lenore knew about all along. Not happy his daughter lied to him, he still lets her go, but is now far more apprehensive. Now that Kim and Amanda land in Paris, they meet the charming Peter, played by Nicolas Girard, an attractive French guy waiting for a cab. Naively, Amanda gives Peter their location and the fact they are staying alone, something she hid from Kim. Peter is actually a spotter, someone who works for a sex trafficking ring to lure young girls into sex slavery. Mills finally gets a hold of Kim on the phone, only to find she is about to be taken. He preps her for the harrowing event while instructing her to shout out her kidnapper's identifying features. Before the event is over, Mills lets whoever is on the other end know that he will find him and he will kill him. Quickly, he enlists the help of his friend Sam, played by Leland Orser, who identifies the voice on the phone as an Albanian named Marco, played by Arbin Bajraktaraji. Sorry, I'm going to butcher some of these names. <laughs> Using Stewart's jet, Mills travels to Paris where he finds Kim's cell phone containing an SD card full of pictures. In one of the pictures, he finds a reflection of Peter snapping a photo of the girls at the airport. He travels there, violently confronts Peter, chasing him onto the highway where Peter is run over by a truck. Now hoping for better help, Mills meets up with his old contact Jean-Claude, played by Olivier Rabourdin who is Deputy Director of Internal Security. He doesn't provide much help since now he wants to secure his desk job, but he does tell Mills where to look first. But he does have a subordinate track his movements. Now on Prostitution Row, Mills pesters a hooker until her pimp roughs him up, giving him the proximity to easily place a tiny microphone on his jacket. Mills hires an Albanian translator named Gregor, played by Goran Kostic, to decipher the pimp's conversation. This information leads him to a construction site, which doubles as a sex slave location. There, he finds Kim's jacket, rescues the girl that has it, while narrowly escaping a shootout and deadly car chase. He takes her to the Hotel Camilla, whose owner is also an old contact. After detoxing her, he learns of a red-doored building in Rue de Pardie. Meanwhile, Jean-Claude is a thorn in Mill's side, either giving him a plane ticket home or to be arrested for his wake of death and destruction. But Mills is far too clever and evades being taken himself. Posing as Jean-Claude, he pretends to extort the Albanians, but once he hears the voice on the phone, he knows he's found his daughter's kidnapper. He easily kills them all, save for Marco, but doesn't find Kim, yet he tragically finds Amanda dead from a drug overdose. Now the white gloves are off. Mills tortures Marco into giving him the information that they sold Kim to Patrice St. Clair, played by Gerard Watkins, a multi-millionaire businessman who sells virgins to the highest bidder. In order to find St. Clair, he must have one last encounter with Jean-Claude. 
Pretending to be looking for a house to live in Paris, he invites himself to dinner, where he shoots Jean-Claude's wife in the arm and ultimately threatens to take her life lest Jean-Claude uses police access to find the whereabouts of St. Clair. He travels to St. Clair's address, still using his fake police identity, where he finds a secret auction room. He forces his way in and finally sees his daughter, dressed in lingerie and jewelry, clearly strung out on drugs. He forces an Arab man to buy her, but he is apprehended by St. Clair. Bound by a zip tie over a pipe, St. Clair orders his death, but he breaks the pipe, shoots his way out, and ends St. Clair's life. He sees Kim being loaded onto a large boat in order to get onto the boat in time. He drives an Audi through oncoming traffic and then physically jumps onto the boat. He shoots his way to Kim, where Sheikh Rahman, played by Nabil Massad, holds a knife to her throat. Right as Rahman exclaims, we can negotiate, he shoots him in the head. Father and daughter are reunited, as Kim exclaims how happy she is that her dad came for her. Safely back in California, Mills finally gets to surprise Kim with music lessons with Shira as credits roll. Well, uh, good job, Corbin. Uh, this is a rather complex plot. So uh, as per usual, you always seem to get the more complex plots. So you did a good job once again. Thanks. My mouth is really dry after <laughs> all of that. Well, I mean, yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, that is true. While writing the plot summary, I actually had to pull up the movie on my phone a couple times because I was struggling to remember how he connected the dots because this is a lot of A leads to B leads to C leads to D. It's right. all a lot of detective work, actually. Um, so there, there is a lot of that going on. Um, it's a very... There's a lot going on in the plot, but I will say it's pretty kind of clear cut. It's pretty straightforward, at least. Yeah, no, and you're right. It, it It's not exactly super hard to follow, but if you want to get into details, then you do have to, you know, at least start to oh, think yeah. more about what's going on. But uh, yeah, so I guess we can start off with uh, just this opening scene, because this is one of the things that I end up kind of liking is... It, as it kind of unfolds the life of uh, Brian Mills, you kind of get to understand that he's a father who wants to repair his relationship with his daughter because of what he did in the past, because of his job in the past, that's kind of destroyed his family, right? He caused a divorce and it caused his father to distance herself. And so we kind of catch him right in the middle where he's like kind of like trying to build that relationship back that he know that he's missed over so many years. But it's like, they the other party is not necessarily reciprocating all of that right so it's it does open up for you know at least a, an intriguing main character uh, especially ones who are i would say who are fathers it's definitely going to hearken to towards them most because of the character of brian mills yeah i really enjoy this opening as well particularly this first act the opening is actually kind of a vhs memory Mm -hmm. And I know the director wanted it to not just be kind of a straightforward, you know, play of the tape, but rather something's not quite right. And that's because his memory is kind of fuzzy. He didn't spend much time with her. And even when you look in his photo album later on, there's large pockets of Kim's life that are missing where she'll go from like five to like 13 all of a sudden. Right. And now to 17 because he's been largely absent from her life. But yeah, I really do actually like the opening credits. They're quick, clean, and that title, the word taken, just juxtaposed next to a picture of her that he has. I'm already kind of pulled in by all of that. But yeah, as you were saying, there is some very interesting family dynamics going on here, how 
he seems like a very loving father that really wasn't bad to his family. He just wasn't there. And he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He wants his daughter to love him, but he also knows that the world is a dangerous place. And um, now that what's her name, Lenore and Kim are very spoiled. They just kind of have this, like you said, this kind of comfort bubble. There's like a lot of naivete going on there. Right. Right. Exactly. Like that. And that's kind of one of the other things too is, um, you know, you do get to, there is like, the, the one of the biggest themes of this is that re retaining of innocence, right? That's his whole goal is to get to his daughter before she loses her virginity, right? That's the main goal. That if he oh, can yeah. do that, then he's won, right? So, and luckily he doesn't end up doing that. He, luckily he does get to her before, you know, before something really bad happens. Um, but it's, it, I do like that idea of, you know, retaining one's innocence, right? We have a lot of films nowadays where it's, you know, usually about like the loss of it, right? Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but we do, uh, it is kind of nice to see a movie like this where it's kind of a, it's, it's about, you know, well, it's always good to retain something like that. Now, not, not necessarily to be sheltered from the world. Um, but at the same time, it's good to at least understand that retaining that innocence is also still a good thing as well. Yeah, you're completely right. That's a very good point. There are a lot of movies, it seems to be more and more that I, I think we're kind of moving away from that. But there was that kind of period where they're just kind of needlessly nihilistic in this loss of innocence where it was just so utterly draining where you're not quite sure what to take from it. But I really do like seeing this noble pursuit. Mm -hmm. And I think they do a fantastic job of, you know, juxtaposing the first act with the rest of the film, because even the way they shot it, they wanted everything to be brightly lit, everything to be clear, everything to just be safe and happy. And Maggie Grace is like 23, 24 when shooting. I totally believe she's this really silly, innocent 17 year old. She does a great job acting mm -hmm. that way. Yeah, she does. Yeah. Yeah. And then seeing, you know, I, I, that is one of the things that I put it, talked about it quite a bit here in my notes is just talking about how even the way this movie comes across kind of almost has this kind of fluffy, fun, you know, late 2000s nature to it. This movie really isn't pretentious. They're really not trying to be too high level with it here. And on that level, it's innocent in that. But you know, and and I like how Brian is, even though he's somebody that has probably killed a lot of people, he's seen a lot of dark stuff. He is still like really sweet. He's like just checking on this karaoke machine. He's really trying his best. He's making sure that the wrapping looks really nice. Mm -hmm. And we kind of have this naive scene where he's like, I know it's not the right time when he's talking to Shira. He's like, I know it's not the right time, but what kind of advice would you give a young girl? And she gives him this really kind of jaded answer until, you know, she realizes just how fragile everything is. So I got to say this first act is pretty well done, at least storytelling and character driven. Yeah, I would say at least when it comes to like setting up the main character that of Brian Mills, I think it does a pretty decent job when it comes to like the main focus, which is Brian Mills and his pursuit to save his daughter. I think it does a good job at correctly setting that up and collect and also clearly showing, you know, what his goal is going to be by the time that she is taken and then how he, how he's going to how much he wants to get 
to save and pursue and fulfill that goal of his. And I just got to ask, I mean, who who isn't pulled in when she is about to be taken because that shot of her just and and that's how the screenwriter Kirkman described it. He wanted it to just be a gut punch to the audience mm-hmm. when she's so happy she's in the apartment. And then across the way through like the distorted glass, she sees her friend being taken and it's right. almost like too much to be real. That's why it's such a distorted scene. Like her viewpoint is so distorted. It's almost like too much to believe, but it's true. And um, Neeson's acting. It, he, You can see the fear because I think he does a lot with his eyes mm-hmm. there. That is really powerful. You can see the fear, but he also goes into this calculating mode where he's like, if we're going to get through this, I cannot let emotion get in the way. And I understand that they had to cut back and forth between um, Kim and Brian. But um, once Brian sets the kind of the recorder down, that was all one shot up until the end of his monologue. Um, It's one shot. Um, Now, now they edit it uh, around it. But nevertheless, that is one take. And I got to say, I mean, who doesn't remember that? I will find you. I will kill you. I just, yeah. I love it. I'm, I'm like, yep, I'm in. Let's do it. That's one of like, <laughs> that's become one of the big lines now that like everyone remember. If you talk about taking, you always remember that one line. I will find you and I will kill you. That, that's, that's the line of the movie, right? And oh, I gotta yeah. say that just that like the scene you were just talking about, right? The scene where the abductors come in and they grab the girls. Um, it's all, it's, it's. You bring up a good point, right? That how you get to see how Kim's reality is distorted, like the reality that she actually lives in, not the one that you know she's been that she's been living in for with her new stepfather. That's kind of made this perfect world for her. You get to see how, like you said, through the through the glass, it's kind of warped that image of of her friend Amanda being taken. How that's kind of like starting to become now her reality. It's weird. It's it is kind of cool how they do portray that and how you know how what she thought the world was is not necessarily how exact how it is exactly. So I gotta say when we do get that scene where they, where she thinks that they're gone and then all of a sudden she gets grabbed from underneath the bed, her legs and she's pulled under and it cuts back to Liam Neeson and it just kind of slowly pushes in on him as you hear her like screaming out the attributes of the guy that's taking her and then wa- and then running out the door. That's just an eerie scene. Like I watched this movie twice, once with the one once with the theatrical cut and then the unrated cut. Both times it was like, uh, like this is just a creepy scene to watch as he, the the father of this daughter, is listening to his daughter being taken as she screams out the attributes of of the man who's taking her, and then eventually just silence. It's a it's a eerie, eerie scene, especially for a PG thirteen film. Yeah, and it it really is a horrible thought when you think about it, how He's really trying to get back in his daughter's life. And now she may be out of his life forever. Mm. Just when he, because he specifically moved back to Los Angeles to be with her. And his buddies are like, well, she's going off to college next year. You're going to lose her then. And he says, that gives me a year to find her. But then coming to find out, he literally only has 96 hours to find her before he'll never find her again. Right. And I think there is kind of some smart foreshadowing here in the writing. Like when Amanda says to Kim, she's like, you got to lose your virginity sometime. Why not in Paris? And then that seemingly innocuous statement comes to find out has some like really sinister, you know, meaning to it or sinister foreshadowing. I should say right. that that's kind of the whole thing that's going to happen. But um, the other thing you brought up is they really did put a lot of thought 
into how they shot this film because I listened to most of the commentary with the director and cinematographer, which is actually a really funny commentary. Those guys are funny. But they did a really great job talking about how um, how much they lit the scenes in Hollywood and Los Angeles. And when it came to Paris, they almost didn't light any of the scenes hmm. because they wanted it to just have this really dark feel to it. There's really kind of dingy feel like you're not going to be able to get out of this place very easily. Uh, kind of have this bleakness to it. So also the scenes in Paris are a lot of handheld scenes, whereas they were specifically trying to make the scenes in the first act and the third act when they're in the United States. A lot of still shots because they just wanted to show there's like a lot of tranquility to it. Um, there's quite a bit that I learned from that. Also, somehow they mixed a 35 millimeter camera with it with an HD camera to achieve some shots. I don't even I don't even know. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, nevertheless, I know people knock a lot of the editing of at least the sequels. But at least for this first film, they're genuinely trying to make a quality product here. And I, right. I think they do good a good job with um, some of the camera work and um, especially a lot of the lighting and staging of certain scenes. Right. And we've kind of mentioned, like, we mentioned before the spoiler section that, you know, this does kind of feel, this ha has the groundwork for being somewhat of a of a born film, right? As I mentioned from the trailer, that you know it does kind of look somewhat like a born film. Uh, it's I it sounds like you and I agree, Corbin. This is a film that is very much harking off of what Bourne has laid out, right? That gritty handheld style of an action film um, that seems to be something that is most definitely an attribute to this movie, and. I would I do I do want to say one thing that kept me engaged each time that I've seen this and I've seen this um, multiple times um not recently but you know overall the time that I've seen it I've seen it a number of times the action is always what kept bringing me back right as with those same born movies we've all we've talked about them we've reviewed all of them and the ones that are done by Paul Greengrass we both have complimented on how like realistic and gritty that action is and how engaging that ends up making it making that film is kind of the same thing here. I don't think the editing with the action scenes is necessarily as, uh, as crisp or as nice as Paul Greengrass, but it does have, it does have that same kind of feeling with that grittiness when it comes to the action, because you really do feel some of the things that happen, um, that Liam Neeson does. And I would say that's even expounded upon in the unrated or extended cut as well, because there are more things that they show that they, they didn't want to get the R rating for, um, that they show in the unrated cut. So this one thing I can also tell, I can also say is that while it is going for a Jason Bourne like feel, they do, I would say, do that while also still making it its own thing. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I put the word Bourne <laughs> yeah. into my notes here because I never, I, I don't, I think I probably watched this and maybe the Bourne movies around the same time. But of course, I really wasn't paying attention to the similarities. This is 100% a Bourne movie. Mm -hmm. What if Jason Bourne had a daughter? This is the movie. I mean, for Pete's sakes, it it looks so much like a Bourne movie. I mean, some of the score, I'm like, you're getting a little close to plagiarizing. <laughs> um, and I will say even the 
car chases. I'm listening to the commentary, or no, it was in the bonus features. They're like, how do we top the born supremacy car chase? Well, here's how we do it. We don't have him crash, whereas Jason Bourne crashed a lot. Our guy is like an expert precision driver, like he doesn't even crash. And Jason Bourne was driving with traffic. In the end, he'll get in that Audi and he will drive against traffic. And they thought that was just, that was their way to top the car chase in the Bourne supremacy. So they are well aware that of the Bourne supremacy because mm-hmm. in many ways they're trying to emulate it. And in many ways they're actually trying to actively top it, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's also one of those things where it's pretty, you can, you can tell that there is most definitely some kind of inspiration of the Bourne movies in this in taken as well. Um, oh, big time. I, I could tell one, cause I, I know I had seen the Bourne movies by that point, but I guess I just never would put the pieces together. Um, <laughs> you know, taken in yeah. the Bourne movies. So I'm just I'm just sitting there and I'm like, why does this seem so familiar? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. And I even found myself like while watching it, like kind of humming the Bourne theme. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ah, OK, yeah, I, I, I get it now. Yep. But when he's first talking with Jean-Claude, um, he's talking about Peter and um, Brian says, I found him. He's dead. And Jean-Claude says, you found him that way? Like. Yeah, I know. I know what happened. You you killed him, right? So just just that kind of banter, I thought was funny. Um, there was some more comedic scenes, or at least dialogue, but that's just the one that stood out to me. So I was glad it wasn't all totally bleak. There was the way it was written. Um, I we'll talk about how the script kind of goes along. How I'm not like totally crazy about it, but nevertheless, I think there is some smart writing in here, mm-hmm. at least with dialogue. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got to also say that prostitution and sex slavery is kind of a big point of this movie. And that's a dark subject that the Bourne movies, I don't think they ever get near. And even even now, it still definitely gets under my skin and makes me uncomfortable with a lot of this stuff. It's just makes me feel icky, honestly. Right. Yeah, that's like you mentioned, it is that's like one of the main points of the story. And well, we'll come back to it. Um because I'm curious to know what, you know, what driving force it has for this script. It looks like it's a thing that the <laughs> filmmakers are trying to focus in on, right? Like, look, this is a serious problem. You know, this maybe even needs to be something that needs to be fixed. It don't see, they always say too much more outside of here it is. This is a bad thing, um, which was why I want to talk about this later um, or bring it up later. But you're right. It is something that it does display and it, it's not necessarily like trying to hold too much back um, without saying like, this is kind of the reality of the situation. And this is also the reason why I couldn't see it when I was when this movie first came out until I finally mm-hmm. got around to watching it in college was this very theme was that, a, you know, human trafficking was not OK with my mom. Yeah, yeah. It, well, thankfully, it definitely doesn't promote it whatsoever. But no, no, especially in Europe, it is a major problem. And they, I will say they do a great job of making us feel very like icky and this is such a disgusting situation, but without going into that R-rated territory, which, you know, now the writer of this movie did write this as, in his mind, he wrote it as an R-rated film. But once he saw that it came out as PG-13, he was actually pretty impressed that it worked so well. But nevertheless, as you said, there is an unrated cut or an extended cut 
you watched both of them. Do you have a preference over the other? This is one of those where there is very little different between the two of them. I think that in reality, there's like one changed scene. And that's the scene when he tortures uh, Marco from Chapoya. Um, in the unrated cut, he takes two nails and jabs into his thighs and then clips the uh, and then clips the the wires to that the dose of electrocute him instead of the, instead of the chair. Mm-hmm. Everything else is like maybe like an added shot here in an action scene, maybe like a slightly extended action scene. That's really the 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 torture scene is the only one that's like the big difference in this movie. I would say probably the unready cut, but that's only because you get that extra that added scene. Everything else really doesn't really add a whole lot. Of, it doesn't really add or take away from the movie itself. Everything else that's changed. So. Yeah, I agree. There's not much of a difference, but I think the theatrical cut works fine on its own. Yeah. But the unrated cut, I think, is just a little harder hitting because this movie does deal with a lot of intense emotions in our main character. And especially, like I said, when the white gloves come off, he doesn't care anymore. He's really, really desperate now because time is almost up. So he's going to go the extra mile. And let's be honest, when you're torturing somebody, you're not really taking like the less painful route. Right. So it makes more sense that he would inflict more pain. And even when he shoots Jean-Claude's wife, that is such a shocking scene that mm-hmm. he just ups and does that. And he's like, I'm going to kill her right now if you don't give me what I want. So just that desperation. Yeah, I think the unrated cut, I mean, I don't think it's totally necessary, but nevertheless, I think it gives you a bit more of of those emotions of that intensity. You know, one of the other things that I like is that Kim kind of realizes who her dad is. She's never known, never really knew or had a relationship with her dad. And when she sees her dad bust in and shoot that guy in the head, she's just honestly shocked. She's like, you came for me. And he's like, of course I did. And Mm -hmm. it's just kind of that realization that, yeah, you really have no idea who I am. I am Jason Bourne. I am John Wick. I'm James Bond. I'm awesome. Like, I'm unbeatable. And um, that is kind of cool. And that's something I thought was interesting that the writer talked about how this is kind of like a power fantasy type movie. It's a little bit perverse because you don't ever want to think of your child (laughs) being taken. But they're nevertheless exchange the situation for somebody's breaking into your house. Somebody is out in public, maybe attacking you or attacking someone else who wouldn't want to be the hero, who wouldn't want to be the Liam Neeson, who you don't have to rely on the police or Interpol or somebody that's going to take forever. That is kind of an interesting thought exercise. I know I thought about it before is you think, oh, yeah, I'm going to run into that burning building and save that person. So this is kind of that movie is, you know, this daughter, her father is going to just go to the ends of the earth and just wake complete destruction to save her. So just kind of that little emotional moment at the end where they're just kind of left. He's left holding his daughter who was kind of dressing in very young teenager clothes. And then she's barely clothed here at the end. It's such a striking contrast. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It is. And that's one of the few... I think it's really the 
only scene i guess where you actually do get a feel like genuine like emotion especially out of our main character because the rest of it is mostly just if, it, if it's not him with his family and them trying to convince him to hey let her go to you know to paris then it's him like fueled by testosterone more or less and fueled by him wanting to save his daughter then it's just hard on action right so it's one of the it's kind of nice that actually after all this action and all of like this breathtaking and almost go 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 feeling, you do gotta kind of get a relief of like him just holding his daughter as it slowly pulls away from them, um, with with them on the boat. So that is one thing that I did like about this last scene is that you know it finally gives us a chance to breathe after so long. This movie is not very long; it's like an hour and a half, um, or an hour thirty three minutes if you have the unready cut. But it's it's finally like when the action is over, it's over, right? And it's like ah. Oh, after so long, you finally get that breath of fresh air uh, where you just kind of get to say, finally, he he won, right? It is it is nice to see that, like, that scene of emotion because we don't get a whole lot of it, you know, for the rest of the film, or at least before this point, at least. Uh, one last thing that I forgot to say during the torture scene is, so originally, this was actually going to be much more violent even than the unrated cut. So in the original draft, um he leaves the electricity on and marco's body starts smoking it like starts like to catch on fire <laughs> and then um um brian takes a molotov cocktail and just chucks it at him and burns him alive while electrocuting burns the whole place down and i think the director and everybody was like yeah let, we we got to move on um kirkman was like i don't think they just wanted to put it in the budget to burn a building down but he's like, that was my original idea. <laughs> oh, interesting. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I told you it was written as an R-rated script. Um, mm -hmm. And there was also that um, callback to Batman Begins, where now it's Neeson who is saying, I believe you, but that won't save you. Right. Whereas um, Christian Bale and Batman says... What does he say? I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you. Something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And which is to Ra's al Ghul, of course. So, yeah. Speaking of Robert Mike came in real quick. We actually have reviewed one of his movies before. The Karate Kid. I kept calling him uh, Kirkman, I think. Sorry. That was wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess he did do Karate Kid. Yeah. And he also Transporter. wrote The Transporter. So if we ever do that, <laughs> I have seen the first one. It's very early 2000s. We'll see. We uh, we might be doing that one. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting how mm -hmm. because he's like, he's like, I wrote the Karate Kid movies and those were PG. Those were for kids. And he's like, and then I wrote this one as an R rated movie. Yeah. Like, oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> OK. So for all the positivity that we've put on this film there are a number of things that just don't work very well for me or i think they really show their age and alan did touch on it earlier you were talking about the crispness crispness gosh that's hard to say hopefully i didn't just blow out your headphones listeners with that but <laughs> the crispness of the editing how it doesn't quite have that editing of like a Bourne film or a Greengrass film and not even just with the action but even the way the opening act is filmed I just feel like it's kind of clunky how it's just cutting back and forth between like the line the scenes of lines where it's just kind of like okay now it's your line 
Now it's your line. There's just not a smoothness to a side to it. I don't think. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. The editing of this movie is not exactly anything spectacular. Um, it's <laughs> serviceable, but you're right. It it does kind of leave a lot to be desired. Um, if if it's not you know shot reverse shot, then it's kind of all over the place. It's not that green grass style of shaky cam editing during the action scenes where it feels kind of fluid, right? It's not the same here. It feels really clunky the way that they at least chop up the action. Um, that was one of my negatives too, is the editing and the action scenes, while it is, they do a, a lot that makes it feel really gritty and it feels, you know, like you, like you actually feel every punch. Um, it's also kind of taken away from that because of how it's also edited, where it's trying to emulate that Paul Greengrass, it feels like, but does not, you know, it does not feel or does not emulate it 100%. Yeah, and I don't know if I've already said this or not, but I think at times it just pulls far too much from the Bourne identity. And I think this movie needs to carve out its own identity. It, I just almost feel like it, at some points I'm like, gosh, this is way too close. I mean, mm-hmm. there's that scene where... Um, Mills is up on the rooftop spying at John Claude yep. through the thing. I'm like, yep. that is straight out of the Bourne Identity. That's um, also there's just way too much. That's also a scene where like I kind of wonder why it's in the film because it, it feels like yeah, it's let's like, talk about it. No, there's not a whole lot of importance to it, I feel at least compared to everything else. It just feels like it's a scene to either A show off how cool our main character is by setting up a phone <laughs> that he calls through a te- through a walkie-talkie. Um, but at the same time, it's also a scene where like, it doesn't really do a whole lot outside of, you know, maybe portray that he's also somewhat being pursued by the government as well, which doesn't go anywhere. So yeah, that's a scene just in general, that scene is just weird. It doesn't feel like it fits. Well, so actually here's a sneak peek behind the scenes. When I wrote the plot summary, I didn't include that scene because ah. I completely forgot about it. And then when I went back, because I was like trying to remember, okay, how does he remember about the Rue de Par- Paradis? So that scene is squished in between um, him dropping the girl off at the hotel to detox. And then he has to go have this phone conversation. And then he comes back to talk with her. You're right. It's completely needless and forgettable. And mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, when I excised it from the plot summary, it actually flowed better. So I do think there are two things in this movie that just don't quite fit. And as I said, that's Shira and that Jean-Claude. I think on one level, Jean-Claude does kind of work because it shows that there is this corruption within the French government or police that knows about all of the stuff that's going on. You know, people are taking bribes and kickbacks and they're just kind of protecting it for their own interests. So there is kind of that ugly side of you can't really trust the government or they're not really going to help you out. But nevertheless, Jean-Claude, I think, is included far too much because he does so little. And it really, after a certain point, he just kind of becomes forgettable or tedious, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, like, I, I understand why he's there, right? If if this movie is also playing on the idea that, hey, this is an issue in Paris that we need to fix. And the police, also portrayed by Jean-Claude, they are also corrupt in a certain way and are not doing anything about it or can't do anything about it. 
you know, I understand that part, but you're right in terms of John Claude playing an important role in this important role in the story or an important role in uh, in our main character pursuing his, his daughter that I don't really see. And mostly with the daughter, I don't really see how he fits in with all of this very well um, outside of, you know, a criticism of the of the um, of the police in Paris. Yeah, especially because they're supposed to be old friends, mm -hmm. but now they have more of a tenuous relationship. But they were friends enough for him to come to dinner and be on a first name basis with his wife. And the wife is so friendly and excited that he's there. But so the way that I took it is he is aware of the prostitution ring and that a lot of people in the department or even his boss are getting money to keep these people protected by the law. Right. He just doesn't ask questions. He's like, I'm not going to ask questions where it comes from. I'm just trying to make a living. I'm trying to look after me and my own. I'm just mostly apathetic, honestly, to how it all goes. I'm more so concerned with how my job goes. I am grateful that it isn't like this very cheesy, cliche, nefarious, like it's been me all along right. working behind the scenes. Like I hate that kind of stuff. So right. thankfully it is a little bit more, I don't know, I want to say almost a little more bleak or nuanced where it just kind of has this apathy where he's like, you come in here and you mess things up and you're kind of making my life hard for me. But nevertheless, it is so, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just clunky. It's like these speed bumps because we're trying to move this plot along at a quick 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the, he kind of just keeps popping up. And we talked about that one scene where that's wildly unnecessary. They just wanted to rip off Bourne. Um, yeah, and he doesn't ever make enough of an impact. He just shoots his wife and then he gives him the information and that's the last that we hear of him. So he's... He's not there to make enough of an impact to honestly justify his stuff. Like, I get that. I kind of like that it shows the corruption and he does help him. He's a tool to help him. And ultimately, he kind of takes him to task, but it's just not enough there. And the other thing that I just, I don't, it just doesn't really set right with me is the whole Shira thing mm -hmm. where he saves her life and they honestly wanted to just show um, right off the bat that this guy is actually really quick, fast. He's really tough. And then Shira kind of drops her jaded persona and she's like, yeah, I'll give your daughter singing lessons. And it's kind of sweet that they kind of have this little fantasy at the end of her dreams get to come true singing with a pop star. But right. I don't know. It's it's a little too sappy. Maybe maybe I don't I don't know. Yeah, I don't have as much of a problem with Shira as I do with Jean Claude, but you, I do agree. <laughs> uh, I, I do agree. Both of these characters, they they feel like they're there, but in terms of how they impact the overall plot, they feel like they don't really do a whole lot. As, especially Shira, she doesn't really do anything at all to impact the plot. Um, but I have more of a problem with Jean Claude than with her because she's also a very like she hardly takes up any screen time. Like she's at the beginning and she's at the very end. That's really all that she takes up. Jean Claude is here and there, all over the place in the second act, um, and ultimately achieves very. It seems like he achieves very little, especially when it comes to our main character's pursuit of his main of his. I mean, almost a main daughter of his daughter. Yeah, I guess I just am not really feeling the emotion that it's supposed to have with Shira at the end. Yeah, <laughs> where it's just like, yeah, it's just like, oh, okay, I guess that's the end. Mm -hmm. And I was honestly shocked that they wrapped around 
to the musician. I felt like it was unnecessary, but I guess the one thing we're supposed to take away from it is that even though his job has caused so much kind of heartache in their life with the divorce and not really having the relationship, nevertheless, he was able to save her and he was also able to, that one encounter with Shira was able to possibly, maybe Kim will go on to have her dreams come true of being a singer. And that wouldn't have happened if he didn't have the job. So right. I guess we're supposed to see that's what comes of it. I just, I don't really care. It's just really needless, unfortunately. Right. But I don't know. Maybe Shira will pop up and take in two and it'll all make sense. I'm going to be honest. I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> but yeah, one of not. one of the other things and this is kind of a big uh, it, it could be a, nothing or it could be a big deal um but one of the other things is and it's hard to miss it is that of human trafficking right like that's like the one of the big things about this movie is that you know the is Neely, Neely, or brian mills's daughter gets involved with the human traffickers in paris and that whole side plot, right? That, like I mentioned, that's the whole thing as to why I couldn't see this movie when I was a kid. Um, I do have to ask, like, you know, is it really, is it really necessary, right? Because this is a PG thirteen movie. Um, they don't really go too deep with it. It's a, it's a problem that is also, I would assume, a bit more complex than how they're provide than at least they're showing it here, right? Because with here they're saying, yeah, it's a problem. You should do something about it, right? But they don't really do more than just that, right? Which isn't necessarily a bad thing because they are portraying it in a bad light. They're not like saying, oh, this is a good thing or whatever. But I do have to ask, like, you know, could this movie have been made? Um, could it have been made without this? I without this, you know, this idea of human trafficking and been just as impactful. Like I'm, just, I'm questioning as to why they had to go down the route of human of human trafficking because it is a big deal, and it's also a very complex and very serious topic that they're kind of portraying here. But they're not really. I would say I don't think that they're doing it justice. I guess I should say that I don't think they're necessarily doing it justice. What do you What do you think? I think it's actually a different idea because I'm glad it's not just a classic ransom because her stepfather is rich, so. That's kind of a bit of a red herring that, oh, maybe they're kidnapping her to extort money from her rich stepfather, which we've seen a thousand and one times. But nevertheless, this makes sense because why else would they just kidnap two of these girls? I'll tell you this, Alan. I think they do it way better than Rambo Last Blood. That is true. <laughs> that is very, very <laughs> true. You're very correct about that. Although uh, they, there are some similarities, I guess, with Rainbow Last Blood in this one. But you are very correct. They do do it. They do a better job at portraying it here um, than in, in that movie. I think. I, I mean, I really do think this is actually a good idea because these are very two innocent girls. Um, at least Amanda is kind of still very fun dancing around to the music, but Kim is definitely kind of a. Somebody you want to make sure she's safe and she does come from a broken home who never really had that father to protect her like in the home per se. And then realizing that she's going to be in the hands of men that will do all kinds of vile things to her for money and use her body. And she is um, just so innocent. I mean, I actually really like it. I think they do a pretty good job of calling to light 
the sex trafficking is actually a major problem that a lot of people don't talk about. And it is kind of swept under the rug, unfortunately, where it really needs to be dealt with more, especially with, you know, in our society and legislation and whatnot. Um, so I actually think it's probably a smart idea, especially in these other countries where it is so pervasive and these two innocent girls, they're like, well, let's just go ahead and abduct them and whatnot. So I'm, I guess I'm on the opposite end of you. I actually really like it. Yeah, I, I'll say, I guess I can kind of explain because I'm not necessarily saying that it's, it shouldn't be in the film. Um, like it's, and like you mentioned, like no other movies really touch this kind of a thing, um, especially American action films. They won't, this is such a serious topic that they won't even go near it. Um, unless you're rainbow less blood for some reason. Um, <laughs> but I, I think my, I think my problem is, is just that it is such a complex and serious issue that, um, I guess I, I don't really feel like, you know, they do it enough justice. Maybe, um, they don't really go too deep into how, you know, how complex and how bit, you know, and how serious it is outside of like, this is just bad, right? Like this is a bad thing and you should wake up to it. Right. That's understandable. And I understand and I get that. And that's totally fine. I don't have a problem with it being in the film. I guess I'm just wondering, like, you know, if they're going to bring this up, right, if they're going to talk about this really serious issue, what are they going to add to the situation to either bring people to understand, you know, how serious it is or how, like, a solution to fix it or some along those lines, which they do do. But at the same time, right, It, I, I don't really like, I guess I don't really understand, like, why it needs to be in this movie. Um but it's not like a, a huge deal because what they do portray, um, as we have talked about, is that it is bad. It is a serious issue. I just wish that they would have like maybe explained themselves some more or gone deeper with like how it should be solved or something along those lines. I think that's where I'm like kind of apprehensive as to why it needs to be in it is like, you know, how deep they go with it because they don't really go too deep with it. I guess the thing that worries me is if they go any further, I think they run the risk of turning audiences away and it becomes more of kind of an activist film than more of an action movie. And also, I think they are trying to stay within the PG-13 boundaries. So if they go any further, I think they could have definitely made it darker. I was particularly thinking of Enemy, which is mm -hmm. a movie we'll be reviewing later this year that has some very kind of the dark side of some of these like sexual places that you know you really don't know about or think about that's where that movie goes i mean for a different reason clearly but i think you're right there's more they could probably do with it if it is such a serious problem i mean you can't just shoot your way <laughs> through all of it you know right it right. does expose there is government cover-ups going on it needs to be dealt with and yeah, I mean, he saves his daughter, but he, I guess he saves one other girl and that's about it. He's not really able to save them all. So then you're kind of left thinking that, is this going to go on? I mean, he does dismantle at least some of the power structure, but nevertheless, I guess it is more so a fantasy as far as that aspect goes. And it's really not trying to deal with it in a realistic way. Um, there is a movie called Eight Days from uh, Yako Boyens directed it. Uh, it's actually on Prime Video right now. I did see that movie and that movie really does deal with sex trafficking and the re like the utmost realities of it because Yako Boyens 
deals with that every time in real life and even his um, sister was a victim of it and that movie mm-hmm. does talk about how to what what we should do to like actually deal with it so i'm just saying if you're curious and you want to go deeper with that subject in a more fulfilling way i guess then eight days is something you should check out right and at least at the very least i think it's good discussion right like it's a good discussion mm-hmm. that you know yeah the, a movie like this that is more pop culture than a movie like you mentioned eight days that's going to reach more people at, the, at least you know it's bringing it up right there is that um you know at least it's bringing it up as a problem um in a film that normally wouldn't like we mentioned wouldn't really go down that route if they would if they knew any better because they would want to draw people they want to draw people in not push them away because of a serious problem there is yeah. I would say controversy to it. There is discussion to be had whether or not it was you know, a right path to go down, as we just talked about. But nevertheless, you know, at least they're bringing it up, right? Sure. Now, there are a couple other issues I have before we wrap up. I think some of the writing is like way too on the nose, where Mills is like, I'm a preventer. I prevent bad things from happening, but mm-hmm. he can't prevent his daughter from being taken no matter how hard he tries. All right, we get it. Um, you know, um, Famica Jensen, Lenore, when he's like, Hey, Kim's been taken, she's like, Oh my gosh. Um, like, that's your reaction to your daughter being taken into sex slavery? Okay. I mean, her crying does become a little better, but, um, the other things are like some of his detective work is kind of ridiculous where he uses the SD card on a just locally available SD card booth. Zoom and enhance. <laughs> That's my favorite part. <laughs> on a, I don't know, sub megapixel flip phone, mm-hmm. and he's able to get an idea of what he looks like. Yeah, right. Yeah, back in two thousand uh, and well, you said this film was shot. Oh, it came out in two thousand nine, so it was probably shot in like two thousand seven or maybe end yeah. of two thousand or like beginning of two thousand eight. I would doubt that you would be able to zoom in that far on a photo from a phone like that. And clearly see the guy's reflection in the glass. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that was just kind of like, that was that was the other thing. I tried to like, oh, wait, how did he figure out Peter was there for my plot summary? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I found the SD card. He found an SD card processing kiosk and was able to zoom in. Okay. See, I'm not, I, I those do exist. I've seen them before, but. <laughs> I don't know exactly like if they're just like a kiosk out in the open in Paris, um, <laughs> but they do exist. I don't know how widespread they were in 2007, 2008, 2009, but they do exist. I guess so. As for the zoom uh, and enhance feature, I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> no, no way that it would have that. The kiosk would have that kind of like image processing mm-hmm. to smooth over those pixels. <laughs> no, right. Um, there are two fade cuts in this, and I know the directors like purposely called them out listening to the commentary. I don't like them. Um, they're, they're really weird because they totally just kind of pull me out of the movie and kind of knock my emotions out. I guess it's like, we're supposed to just be left with the fallout. The first one comes when he finds Amanda overdosed on drugs and she's dead. And then it just kind of fades out. I'm like, okay. And Mm -hmm. then the other time is when he gets knocked out in the back of the head and then he wakes up. Yep. I just, I don't like them. I mean, did you have any particular feelings about those cuts? Um, Not necessarily the one with Amanda, but the one where he um, forces, or the one when he comes across, uh, what is his name? I just totally forgot it. 
Saint Saint Clair. Yeah, that scene with Saint Clair when he walks when he try when he forces the other guy to buy his daughter, and then he turns around and walks out walks out the door, and he gets hit in the back of the head and just fades to black. That I feel like after a scene as exhilarating and as stressful as the one before it that like just happened, that's like a complete cutoff, right? It just halts right there. That's a that is a a bad edit. I feel it, it is a bad edit, and I don't like that either. Um, yeah, I mean, like we've said, I'm not crazy about some of the editing in this movie, mm-hmm. um, and this is probably one of my probably my overall biggest negatives is. I, I, okay, I like that this is kind of a bit of a detective mystery. Like he does some like kind of good sleuthing where he pesters a prostitute, which gets him to put a microphone on that guy and he has an Albanian translator and just kind of like fun stuff like that. But then at the same time, after a while, this movie becomes basically like a video game mm-hmm. where it is very much like follow these clues to here and then it just becomes increasingly like harder, like boss levels and whatnot yep. where I'm like, oh, okay. So he defeated Marco who took his daughter. You think that's it? No, that leads him to Jean-Claude, which is actually a secret boss. You didn't know you were going to have to fight, which leads him to St. Clair, which is a like, you think that's the big boss surprise. It's um, whoever Sheik, the Sheik at the very end is the final boss on the boat scene. Yep. I mean, this movie is would perfectly translate into a video game. Oh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. There is always somebody. He just kind of goes up the chain, right? There's always somebody more powerful than the person he just got to, right? Every time, up until the very end. And I'm sure in the next movie that there'll probably be even more people that he has to go through <laughs> to get to the bigger person <laughs> that's more powerful than the one that he killed before. You're right. It just kind of, it, it kind of, there are so many people that die in this movie that it almost, it almost becomes, um, what's the word? Uh, desensitizing right like that happens oh <laughs> like there's a lot of deaths in this movie and i get it right they're already bad people um because they're dealing with human trafficking but yeah it, you're right it feels the more longer it goes on the more it becomes more like a video game you're right yeah if you want to just for fun keep track of the kills there is on the blu-ray a black ops manual that you can have overlaid while you watch the movie. And it gives you an injured count, a kill count, a miles traveled count in kilometers. And one other thing, I don't remember. Um, oh, the, it also has a countdown for um, once it hit 96 hours and it's a live countdown for the hmm. most part. Interesting. So that's actually, that's actually kind of cool. I've never seen that before. Um, and then of course they kind of have those Rambo, um, trivia track um, playing oh, over yeah. it where it's like a flight from Los Angeles to Paris would take you 10 and a half hours. I'm like, oh, Thanks. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I watched a little bit of it. It was like a little helpful because it basically explained what the, um, what the place is that Jean-Claude works for, what that is, because mm. I had no idea what it is. So I was like, oh, okay. That's, that's actually a little helpful, but yeah, it also has silly stuff too. So, right. Nevertheless, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I gotta say, I, I kind of briefly mentioned this a little bit ago. Um, there really isn't, you know, a whole lot of emotion outside of like the ending scene when he finally reaches his daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Right. I that's I I don't really have too much of a problem with you know because it is like going for that right. It's not really going for a whole lot of emotion until it's finally time to have it at the very end of the story. 
Um, but there is also the question to bring up, like, you know, how did he get out of Paris? Because we were told through John Claude time and time again that, you know, the prime minister or whoever, the government does not like him. They want him gone, right? They want him to put him in jail. Right. But he, you know, he, John Claude, talked him out of it and said, here, how about just get him a plane ticket and get him out of here, right? So when he does save his daughter, he just somehow ends up back in America, scot-free, no problem at all. And he, there are seemingly no consequences for the actions for all the people he killed in Paris. Uh, okay. Um, if you say so, like that, that's a bit of an issue, right? That, you know, not necessarily that, you know, he escaped from Paris, no problem, but also that there's no consequences for killing as many people as he did. That's, that's a bit of a problem, I feel. Well, they're hoping you won't sit down and think about that. They're rushing you towards the exit. Credits are about to roll. He saved his daughter. Take a breath. You're fine. Cool down. Don't worry about the details. <laughs> That's basically what they're saying. But you're right. Um, it was honestly kind of jarring for me when he saves his daughter and then cut to them at the airport. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's kind of a lot they have to deal with here with getting her off the boat, getting her clothes, dealing with some emotional fallout. And of course, she's just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, running up to her mom and stepdad. And Neeson is like, oh, hey, no big deal. And he doesn't even ride with them for Pete's sakes in the car. Right. Like, what? Oh, okay. And yeah, honestly, I was expecting um, when he's like hugging his daughter at the end, I think that could have been you know, cut to black and play that really nice song at the end. Mm -hmm. And that would have been like, oh, yeah, okay, that was good. I'm, I'm feeling it. But yeah, they kind of, they really do have to wrap around to this kind of, I mean, I put, I put in my notes, ending doesn't have much emotion to it. And I just wasn't happy about that. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where my whole, like, I don't, like my apprehension towards this idea of human trafficking comes in, right? It doesn't seem to affect our main, our characters hardly at all when it's all said and done, right? It does very little to try to do that kind of a thing. Um, or even not just that, but also just that the Brian Mills kills a lot of people. There's no consequences for that, right? Like, it's it's kind of hard to believe that that would be the case. Now, I get it, right? It's supposed to be like a silly action movie. And that would be fine. But again, they're dealing with a pretty serious issue here. So I would think that maybe they would put, you know, at least a little bit more thought or a little bit more something towards this idea they don't really do that. I think that's kind of where my biggest apprehension towards this whole idea of human trafficking comes from. They don't really, you know, it doesn't feel like it, it does much, is my thing. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, our our main character really has no, well, not our main character. Um, Kim has no emotional scars, seemingly, from the fallout, which I thought, I'm like, man, you'd probably have, like, PTSD, um, she clearly had some kind of drugs in her system. Mm -hmm. You're right. That is kind of disappointing that what we really enjoyed about the opening, that kind of very innocent nature seems to just, and it's like lost very quickly within the second act. It's a very like kind of the epilogue of the film that innocence is resurrected again. And that's a nice sentiment, but it's wildly unrealistic. Right. And you're right. It's just like, Hey, I saved you from sex trafficking. Now you can go be a singer like you always wanted to. Um, yeah, I think we probably would have felt more emotion if um, Kim did have some scars from it. Of, of course, it's convenient. It kind of follows these horror movie tropes that the virgin 
gets to last till the very end. Right. And it's because she was a virgin. They didn't really touch her. They sold her. She didn't really have to go through much of a harrowing experience, whereas Amanda was already not a virgin. And she's the one that gets uh, raped and pumped with tons of drugs that kills her like super fast and whatnot. Right. Even that I didn't, even that I didn't feel there was proper emotion, at least in the theatrical cut I was disappointed with. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. I'm not too crazy about this ending where it's just like, okay, you get to be a singer now. And I don't know. It's just far too much of a fairy tale ending. And it's far too jarring for a movie that goes from innocence to realizing the ugly side of the world. I'm not really sure what Kim's supposed to learn, except I don't know. I don't I don't know. What is she supposed to learn well, from that? I, I, th- I feel like, you know, the because she's wanting to grow into an adult, right? Um, so we already have that battle, which with oh yeah, if I had to mention this, I guess, when we were talking about Lenore a little bit ago. Um, in the negatives portion, Lenore's kind of a jerk. What did they learn? Like overly much of a jerk in this opening. Um, but that aside, beside that, you know, the I think what the what the lesson to be learned here with the daughter and with the mom and what have you is that yes, there is danger to be learned. There is danger in the world, and that the that innocence needs to be preserved, especially in this instance, right? Um, and so maybe they maybe they learned that right that you know it is good to you know, be okay and not have to go outside the world and you know, I guess experience it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think that maybe there is uh, a thing of overparenting here or over sheltering children in this movie as well. That could probably be pulled from it. That could be a, a, either a, a bad or a good thing, I guess, depending on how you look at it. Um, but I, I guess you're right. Now I think about it. There isn't really much in terms of what she learns. Um, and I would argue for most care, uh, for both dad and daughter, in terms of lessons learned, there's not a whole lot that's there. There's maybe something with dad, but not not by much. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it just reaffirms his initial feelings of, hey, this is going to be dangerous. And of course, within being there for an hour, she's like sold into like taken into sex trafficking. It happens super fast. Unfortunately, right. that's also a little like, well, that was quick. Yeah. Um, yeah. As soon as you land, like you're just immediately snatched away, essentially. Um, yeah, nobody really learns anything in this movie. I think us as an audience member, as you were saying, parents learn like, hey, you got to watch out for your kids, you know, be careful where they go and who they talk to and who their friends are, especially because this is like a lot of it's Amanda's fault. But I know I'm just really frustrated that there's so much um, animosity between Lenore and Brian in the beginning. And then here at the end, you think there's going to be some kind of a, you know, resolution and it's just so truncated. It's so quick because mm-hmm. um, she's like, mom, I'm I'm home. I'm, I'm safe. And they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're safe. And the stepdad's like, hey, thanks for this. And that's it. Oh, OK. Yeah. Thank you for okay. saving our daughter from being <laughs> sold into human trafficking. <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Like that's that's literally as far as that that goes. Right. In terms of banks, at least that's all that we see. And I think that maybe this is just an hour and a half too short. Right. Because there's so much, especially <laughs> for like like we're just talking about, like the aftermath of what, you know, of what Kim goes through, both, I guess, Kim and Brian, what they both go through. There is something there or there should be something there, but they don't really explore it. 
maybe I guess it's kind of true for the whole thing, right? There's something there and like just and almost every idea that that touches upon, there's something there, but in terms of exploring it, they don't really ever do that. Like it's pretty much surface level for everything that they deal with here. Well, unfortunately, this is an action movie first and then it's an emotional drama at the tail end. That's, I mean, that's this movie's last concern. Right. Um, This is chasing the Jason Bourne and even Jason Bourne had some emotional fallout which it which it explored in the sequels, mostly not really in the first one. Maybe we'll get that exploration that we're kind of hankering for that we're just really cut off and it just leaves us hanging here at the end. I don't know. I'm curious to see how they will because they have to explore it in two and three. They mm-hmm. have to. I mean, it, it's, I can't even imagine them not addressing it. But to preview my recommendations of a movie that does that's basically the same movie but has much more emotional resolution and drama to it is Man on Fire. It's got Denzel Washington in it. It's a Tony Scott film. The movie is absolutely fantastic. And that will give you everything you're missing here and Taken. So that's a preview for what I recommend after watching this. But are you ready to wrap it up? Yeah, I think I am. All right. I, I'm curious, Alan. What is your rating and recommendation for Taken? So... I remember I loved Taken when I was a college student, a freshman in college when I first watched this movie. And I haven't touched it for a number of years. I sold the DVD because I wanted to get it on Blu-ray at some point and then never ended up getting it on Blu-ray. Now I finally get to return to it. What do I think about it? I think it's at best just okay. Um, There are, in fact, I kind of, I feel like I'm being... uh, I'm more confused the more I talk about it, right? Because I'm trying to say, oh, well, you know, there is that idea of preserving innocence, right? Well, then at the same time, right, there is also some, also something to be said about overparenting, right? And then, of course, as we just uh, we talked about in uh, ad nauseum about the human trafficking element, that's way overblown here, or at least to a point where I don't feel it's served very well, because not only do our characters not have any fallout or any emotional um, nothing that's portrayed emotional baggage because of it. It's also not explored hardly at all. And I get it. That's fine that they show that it's a bad thing, that it needs to end, and that there is a problem with it in not just Paris, but also just around the world. But there are you know, other things about it that are causing it to be worse than it actually is because of police corruption, yada, yada, yada. But that is the main element of the movie. And because they do so little with it and don't and only use it as a vehicle for the action, that's where I think I have the most apprehension towards this movie. Its action is fine, but its editing is not great, and it really takes away from what would be a Jason Bourne-esque action scene. So, at the end of the day, I think Taken is a fine action movie if you disassociate yourself from the more realistic elements that it tries to portray, but doesn't portray it very well. And that's the human trafficking elements and everything around that, right? So if you can disassociate yourself from that, you'll probably have a great time with Taken. If you're like me, where you're trying to start to like think about it and like maybe start prodding at it and say, well, what about this issue? Then I feel it starts to fall apart. So at the end of the day, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. I don't think I'm going to recommend it, but I think as I think it's the good elements just barely scooted above, um, just barely scooted above uh, not good. So there you go. I gotta say, I'm surprised you ultimately aren't recommending it. That's <laughs> not a good sign for the rest of the series. <laughs> yep. I I was actually expecting you to give it a very slight recommend, but that took me by surprise. Okay. Well, 
Taken takes me back to my early teenage years when PG-13 action movies were invigorating and downright fun. Looking back, I recognize their cheesy qualities, but in spite of their seeming shortcomings, so much of Taken feels of its era and I enjoy it for that. Yeah, the score is wildly uneven and at times sounds like it's either plagiarizing Bourne or ripped straight from an Xbox 360 video game, <laughs> and the editing makes the first act feel stilted, but I'm having so much fun. The dichotomy between the bright innocence found in the first act, then how it transitions into the heart-pounding terror and darkness, while never straying too bleak is jarring yet gripping. And let me just say it now, Neeson makes the film. When I think of Taken, I think of him kicking butt and his now-famous line, I will find you and I will kill you. Even though the movie ends on a cheesy note, it has a lot of great things to say about love, sacrifice, innocence, coming of age, all wrapped in an action thriller. I had so much fun revisiting this movie, and I'm actually looking forward to watching the sequel for the very first time. Taken receives 7 stars out of 10 with the recommend. Oh man. Interesting. <laughs> We're like on the opposite ends of uh, why we recommend it or don't recommend it, I guess in my case. Yeah, so, I mean, I definitely agree with you. There's a lot of issues here that it's just like, well, I guess I guess the movie's done. I guess we're not going to try and address anything. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, technical issues galore and just stuff. I mean, some of the stuff, like I said, that feels of its era that does kind of have this almost like Xbox feeling to it or 2000s feel to it. I kind of like that it's of its time, but... Nevertheless, I'm able to kind of overlook those flaws because I just enjoyed this movie. I thought it was a really fun 90 minutes. And I do think it does have those good qualities like love, sacrifice, you know, rescuing your kid and whatnot. But right, definitely issues. But our ratings right. aren't too far off. From each right. Other. But I got to say, mine's dangerously close to a five out of 10. I do have to state that. Like I oh, right okay. when I said six, I was like, maybe I could give it a five. And I think I'm going to stay six, but it is dangerously close to, be, to being a five. I do have to say that. Okay. All right. Well, do you still own it? You don't recommend it, but do you still own it? That's what I want to know. Um, actually, no. I have, I have yet to buy the Blu-ray uh, for at least the first second. I have two and three, which I bought for us to review in the coming weeks, um, but I don't have the first one on Blu-ray. I did used to own it, and then I sold it to buy it on Blu-ray, and I just never did. Okay, so now that you've picked up two and three, are you going to pick up the first one? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Oh my gosh. Probably not. Maybe. You're, I don't know. It's in between there. Every time somebody looks at your movie collection, they'll be like, you won't take in two and three, but not the first one. That'll be fun to explain. You you get to explain that. Yeah. I'll, yeah, that'll be. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun to explain. <laughs> Well, clearly you did not ultimately recommend Taken, but is there any other film, TV shows, or even a video game that you do recommend? So there is, there are actually a couple of like these Liam Neeson action movies that um, I can recommend. Um, Unknown, which is, if you thought this one was like Born, Unknown is like Born Identity to a T. Like it's actually kind of almost plagiarism how, how close those two are. Um... I don't remember much from it. I don't remember it being very good, but it is similar to this and to Born Identity. Um, Nonstop, which I think we've both seen. Um, yep. And the Born Trilogy. I can't not 
recommend that after seeing this one, which maybe I'll eat my words in the coming sequels where I also want to recommend the Bourne trilogy, but those are the three that I will recommend. I'm going to recommend at least the first John Wick film, maybe John Wick chapter two as well. I feel like there's kind of a lot of stuff that's kind of paved the way for John Wick. Um, Neeson is very much a John Wick figure in this. And I got to say, I mean, mild spoilers, I guess, for John Wick 2 if you haven't seen it. But there is that scene at the end where John Wick is now excommunicado. And his Winston says, they're going to come for you. And he's like, I want you to tell them, tell them that I'm going to kill them. I'll kill them all. And I'm like, oh, that's just so much like taken yeah. with that scene. Um, it's pretty exciting within the context of the movie. But I'm also, as I already previously mentioned, I'm recommending Man on Fire with Dakota Fanning and Denzel Washington. I love that movie. That is that is an emotionally riveting drama with some insane uh, editing, 2000s editing. It's not bad. It's its own style. But um, maybe if you're sensitive to that, it might give you a seizure or something. I don't know. But I love Man on Fire, and it does actually have a really interesting Christian element to it as well. That That is everything I wish Taken was. But Man on Fire is, is actually very compelling. Um, And as far as Liam Neeson action movies go, yeah, I'll recommend Nonstop. I think that movie's super fun. And I'm also going to recommend The Commuter. Um, I haven't got to see all of the Neeson action films. I did pick up Run All Night from Dollar Tree on Blu-ray not that uh, long yeah. ago. So I'm curious to watch that. But The Commuter is, I think it's like a seriously good movie. It's very, Hitch it's a modern Hitchcock, I think. Um, so if you haven't seen The Commuter, definitely check that one out. I guess if you enjoyed The Commuter, then I'm also going to recommend to you Source Code, which has nothing to do with this movie. but just a separate recommendation. <laughs> well, it should be no surprise that a movie that makes back 10 times its budget is a big, big, big hit. I mean, I cannot understate when it's 2008, Alan and I are, are teenagers. Taken was like for us the movie of the year. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody mm -hmm. was seeing it. Big at the box office. It should be no surprise that we got a sequel. No surprise at all. But what is a surprise is that it took four years to get the sequel out. Yeah, and it's by a guy named Oliver Migaton, who did uh, Transporter 3, and not really a whole lot else. Mm. I have that. never heard of him. I've never seen one of his movies, I don't believe. I do know that the writers are the same writers across all three films. Gotcha. Well, we'll see what you think when we come back to uh, Taken 2 next week. Um, because it will be your first time seeing an Oliver Megaton movie. I don't remember yeah. a whole lot from it, so maybe it'll be better than I remember it being. But we'll we'll see. Uh, I'm I'm curious to know what my thoughts are because I watched that around the same time I watched the first Taken. Same with the third one. So it's been a number of years, and I clearly had very differing thoughts on this Taken the time I watched it now than when I first watched it. Yeah, I'm curious as well. I mean. I have heard some things about it, but across the board, the scores aren't terrible, except for three. We'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. I'll be curious. I'm so curious to see what you think about Taken 2 and 3. Oh, I'm so curious. <laughs>
I am too. I uh, have a feeling I know where it's going to go. But maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Maybe for the wrong reasons. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. So Taken 2 was announced in 2010. It was two years later, which is honestly shocking. Honestly, that a movie that did this well, they weren't rushing it into production. Um, but yeah, I mean, nevertheless, I definitely remember seeing the trailers. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're doing a Taken 2? Mm -hmm. I'm like, what could it be about? He already rescued his daughter. I remember the trailers intriguing me, but I never got around to seeing it. Um, and you, you didn't see it in the theater, did you? No, I didn't watch it until, um, I, I guess also when I was a freshman in college. Uh, which would have only been a couple years after it came out. One of my guys was like, oh, you should also see the other two. And so we did. <laughs> That's how I got to watch it. Well, listeners, the question after the show is, does Taken still hold nostalgia for you or has its sheen worn off? Yeah, you kind of know what me and Alan think. We're, we're kind of, uh, there's a little bit of nostalgia there, but if you if you actually pay attention to it, there are some significant issues. Mm -hmm. But, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will be back next week with Taken 2. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Where they initially take the girls. Meanwhile, Jean-Claude is a thorn in Mill's side. Oh, wait, one second. Um, Audacity is not responding. Great. <laughs> okay, we're back. We're back. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do want to talk about Jean-Claude because he has a lot of scenes in this 
and mm -hmm. also um, Shira because she actually wraps around to the end of the film. I just, I don't know. Okay, actually, I got to go to the bathroom really bad. So I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll talk about it.